0: hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel Saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people of Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David and said, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring to ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his house after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites, and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or life, There also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook at Kidron, and all the people passed towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, and let him do with me what, he seems, what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest... Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahmaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all of the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel." Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are there with them, Ahima's, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to this city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem.
1: father speak speak to us this morning we're not here to be inspired to get some application for our lives to come out better people not primarily we're here to see you to be transformed by your presence that your living and abiding word would enter our hearts and recreate us. Yes, do this this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All of a sudden, and almost out of nowhere, David's spectacular rise to the throne falls into darkness, darkness we can hardly imagine. This man, after God's own heart, he killed Uriah as he attempted to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. A stunning fall, and it takes your breath away. And it's a horrifying reflection of humanity that we all see ourselves in the face of David's fall. Now, David repented. We saw this last week when Ben Osenbach preached, David repented and and God was restoring him. And yet the sins of David now unleashed a series of chaotic consequences, which we have just read about some of them, consequences that were foretold in last week's message by the prophet Nathan. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house It's happening now. In chapter 12, which was the chapter right after David's repentance, evil of the darkest order rises out of David's own house, and yeah, it takes your breath away. So we need to set up the context for chapter 15. We skipped over a number of chapters. We need to look at those chapters in brief, the ones we've skipped, and set a context for today. I want to then unfold the drama, what's going on here in chapter 15. And then finally, I want us all to see that there is a great reversal underway. And it is glorious. So there's a bunch of names to consider as we go through a little bit of context setting. And I have a slide here to help you keep these names straight. There's Ammon, who's David's eldest son. He's the heir apparent. And if David's lusts were dark, Ammon's were far darker because he lust- lusted after his half sister, Tamar. There's this account where Ammon fakes a sickness, he lies in bed. Wants everybody to think that he's sick, and then he tricks his father David into sending sending Tamar in to take care of him while he's sick. And when they're alone together, Ammon rapes Tamar, his sister. David unwittingly helped Ammon do it. a after that, she's got virtually no future. But she exposes the injustice. And upon learning about this, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, we read that David was very angry. <laughs> Rightly so. He's furious that his son has done this. Atrocity. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. And his indifference in this situation is stunning. It's, it's horrifying. Like, Amnon deserved death. That's the consequence under the law for such wickedness. But could David put his own son to death? Despite what he's done? So he does nothing. Absalom, sister dearly, He sees what's done to his sister, and it enrages him. Then he sees that his father does nothing, nothing. You can imagine what that does in his heart. A seed of bitterness is planted there. So he tells his violated sister to wait. Be calm. He'll bring justice. He'll bring justice by his own hand. And after two years of brooding and playing nice with his family and scheming, Absalom pulls off this elaborate scheme and he murders Amnon in front of all of his other brothers in cold blood. And knowing that there are consequences for cold-blooded murder, Absalom then flees he, he flees the land of Israel, he flees the promised land, and he goes immediately to the land of his mother, to Gesher. And in a moment, David has effectively lost two sons, one to the grave, one to exile, and he grieves the loss of both of them. But Absalom has murdered Amnon in cold blood. There's there's no getting around that. It's an act that's punishable by death. David knows this. And David is the high judge of all Israel. He's the one who should be bringing justice to his own son. Just as he should have done with Amnon. He should have brought Absalom back. But he can't. He can't do eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth with Absalom. He couldn't do it for Amnon. So better for Absalom to stay far away than for David to have to send his son to the grave. And thus David effectively rejects Absalom. It's a twisted form of protection. And he's angry. He rejects Absalom. But has David forgotten that he himself is a murderer? That he has been forgiven and that he has been restored, that he has been loved by his heavenly father despite the atrocities that he himself has committed? Where was the justice in in David's murder? It was purely motivated by lust and by fear. But Absalom, he at least murdered for justice. Amnon was a rapist. And that, knowing that that happened, you can see how it would feed Absalom's heart. David, my father can be reconciled, but I can't. Three years pass with Absalom in exile. And Joab sees that David is beginning to yearn for his son. He wants Absalom back, but it seems that he's too proud or he's too stubborn to reconcile with Absalom, to welcome him back. And don't we know contradic- contradictions like this within our own hearts? You want reconciliation, but you, you can't let go of the pride, you can't let go of the stubbornness. I know it. And so it's Joab's turn to engage in trickery. And through this elaborate ruse, Joab helps David to see that he does love Absalom. And because he loves Absalom, he should welcome him back. He should put this pride and this stubbornness away. Bring Absalom back. Three years is a long time, though, for for a son to feel the rejection of his father. And Absalom's not forgotten these injustices that his father has committed and though re- yet regardless of that like so many sons seeking the approval of their fathers Absalom comes back But Absalom is in Jerusalem for 2 years and David won't speak to him He won't see him He gives Absalom, the silent treatment, for two years. That's impressive. It's so bad for Absalom. Like This is such... um, It so agonizes his soul that at one point he says to Joab, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. In other words, I'd rather die than this stupid silent treatment keep going. Only after crafty maneuvering from Absalom and Joab does David finally, eventually see his son. And as Absalom approaches in the court of the king, to Absalom's great relief, David gets up and he kisses him. Kisses Absalom, a a sign of pardon, of of restoration, of reconciliation. After five long years, Absalom's exile is over. It's over. But it isn't forgotten. The pride, the rejection, the injustice is not forgotten. Now verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom was a man of great arrogance. I see it right here in verse 1. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. Chariots are not made for city streets. They're made for the open field of battle. They serve virtually no purpose in a city. And here he is, riding around in a chariot, in Jerusalem's streets. And 50 runners? He's literally par- parading himself around Jerusalem, elevated and elite up on his chariot with his 50 runners all around him. What a spectacle it would be when Absalom comes riding by, the son of the king. It's nothing but a brazen display of vanity. Vanity, a great problem for Absalom. Not only was he a wealthy prince but he was also incredibly handsome. Samuel 2:14:25 says, "Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish on him." Remember David was once described as ruddy and handsome. Now, Absalom is described as the most handsome. It's a dangerous combination when vanity mixes with ambition. And Absalom has ambition. Verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when a man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus, Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He was vain, he was ambitious, but he was not stupid. And with the same sort of cold calculation that we once saw displayed in his father, Absalom knew exactly how to manipulate the hearts of the people. Injustice marked David's adultery with Bathsheba, something that now marked David's life, this injustice. And when he pulled Joab into murder Uriah, that injustice was spilling out. And when David did nothing after his daughter was raped, that was injustice. And there was injustice when David went mercilessly years not talking to his son. Injustice, injustice, hammering you for chapters in 2 Samuel, coming from David. What happened? Where's the justice? He's a man after God's own heart. He's repented, but there's something rotten in there. He's not... Any more actively dispensing justi- injustices like going out and committing evils anymore, it just seems that he appears to be ruling with ambivalence and indifference and detachment, like he doesn't care. Meanwhile, injustice, injustice, rolls on. And Absalom sees this, and all the people apparently see this. It's felt everywhere. In Israel. And so, whenever somebody comes to Jerusalem, there's Absalom waylaying them by the city gates, flourishing his pomp and his pretense, and he's preying upon people's desire for justice. He knows how to get them, he'll promise justice. The incumbent represents the establishment, the old order. They're uninterested in the affairs of the common man, but Absalom, he's different. He's the new generation. He's full of promise and chance at real justice. And he's so handsome. There are versions of Absalom we'll be seeing in 2024. And how easily the hearts of the people are swayed. They forget Who is Yahweh's anointed? Even so, it's David's indifference that allows Absalom to manipulate the hearts of the people for four years. For four years? Verse 7, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his, from his city, Gilo And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. <laughs> David grants his son, son's request, and he says, Go in peace. And there's no peace that Absalom goes with. It's supremely ironic. Absalom's resentment for his father has now fully matured. His scheming has turned into courage. And he seems that he's garnered the support that he needs because he's ready to unleash his devious conspiracy upon all Israel. And he unleashes it from Hebron, Hebron in Judah. Hebron, the city where David was first crowned. Hebron is the city where Absalom was born. In Hebron. Perfect place for Absalom to centralize his power. He dupes 200 of Jerusalem's elite into following him. They don't know anything of Absalom's conspiracy, but they're caught up in his web because their presence in Hebron implicates them. So they join Absalom unknowingly. But Ahithophel, he enters Absalom's conspiracy with his eyes wide open. And this is a major blow to David. This is, this is like David's top advisor, Ahithophel. He's one of the most high-ranking officials in the entire government. And so with Israelites. It persuades so many Israelites that Absalom must be the guy now. And verse 12 ends... The people with Absalom kept increasing. His numbers are are swelling. David's numbers are falling in the polls. Absalom's are like top in the charts, it would seem. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike this city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. So he's heard about Absalom's conspiracy now. He's heard that the hearts of the people have been stolen, that the going after Absalom now it doesn't belong to him anymore. David's throne had been undermined by apparent years of ambivalent rule, and, and a son that despises him now. If David was caught in listless indifference before, well, Abra- uh, Absalom's conspiracy seems to jolt him, awake, jolt him to action. And so Absalom marches upon Jerusalem. He's coming. David, shaken back into his decisive shrewdness, he flees the city. He flees the city. This is David, the mightiest warrior in all Israel, running. He knows that his forces are outnumbered and they are outpaced. Verse 14 tells us his reasoning for fleeing the city. Two reasons. Absalom will kill David and and all those loyal to David. And he will put the city to the sword. He will burn Jerusalem to the ground if, it means, if that's what it means to get David. So to protect himself, his people, and to protect Jerusalem, David leaves. But though he flees for his life, there is no frenzied retreat. He leaves ten concubines in his palace. That comes up later, outside of this chapter. But he leads this prolonged regal procession out of Jerusalem, and it's marked by a succession of very important encounters. With each encounter, David is proving that he is now alert, that he is still a masterful tactician, and that he is still a man of faith. The meetings reveal already, subtly, that Absalom has underestimated his father. Look at verse 18. And all the servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, know not where. Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai. Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by and the king crossed the brook of Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. There's been this group of foreigners that have been following David since since Gath. If you're from Gath, you're called a Gittite. And long before David was king, he fled from Saul. You remember, he fled to the land of the Philistines. He fled to Gath, and there he hid for a time. And apparently, these Gittites and, and other various groups of Philistines have been following him ever since. Somewhat remarkable. And David's first encounter before he even leaves Jerusalem is with Itai, one of the Gittites, but he's just recently arrived. And we learn in coming chapters that Itai is a man of means, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he commands, um, uh, he commands soldiers of his own, and it seems that he himself is a mighty warrior. But being a foreigner, with no obligation to David, again, he just, just arrived, just yesterday. So for that reason, Dave, David offers him this honorable departure, like, don't follow me around by obligation, Ittai, Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show you steadfast love, said and faithfulness. That's the first time David has mentioned Yahweh since chapter 12, which is about six to eight years ago. Six to eight years of incredible darkness And there's no account of David even mentioning Yahweh. Well, even though he had just arrived only the day before, even though David marches into uncertainty and into danger, Etai pledges himself wholly unto David. Here's words again. As the Lord lives, And as my Lord, the king lives, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. What a pledge of loyalty. Um, Wouldn't you love a friend like this? A loyal, someone so loyal in your life, they go with you whether life or death. It's reminiscent of words once spoken by Jonathan and somehow through those words through this encounter with attai david's faith appears now to have jolted awake his alertness his tactical side has been awakened and now it seems with attai his faith is awakened he's spoken the name of god and then and then you get this profoundly Mournful scene as David exits Jerusalem. He exits through the eastern gate down into the Kidron Valley opposite the Mount of Olives. And there's a little brook there, the Kidron Brook. And whether symbolic or literal, the image that this chapter gives you is that all of faithful Israel is looking upon David, crossing the Kidron Brook, leaving Jerusalem, and he's humiliated. And they weep. They weep as their king leaves. As the throne fails. And then just on the other side of the Kidron, David has his next meeting. It starts in verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Abiathar and Zadok, two priests, and a whole company of Levites, meet David next, and with them the ark of the covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most important symbol of the presence of God. Where the Ark is, there's the presence of God. And such an object in David's camp would symbolize his legitimacy. It would symbolize that regardless of uh, of Absalom's coup, David is the king. It's no wonder Abiathar and Zadok brought it. But can David presume That by possessing the ark, Yahweh will just automatically be on his side? Will he wield the ark like a mere token of superstition? Attempting to manipulate God? I had got the ark, now God, you've got to be on my side. I wave my trinket at you, so blessing is mine. No, he does not presume this. And David's heart of faith is beginning to beat again. Instead of trusting in a box of gold and a superstitious approach to it, David casts himself entirely upon the sovereign will of God. And in the midst of uncertainty, of danger, of losing everything, David casts himself on the will of God and he knows that God's way is best. He is prepared to accept his outcome, whatever the outcome. If God chooses to favor David, and he knows that he will return David to Jerusalem's throne... David's been rebuked by the Lord. And now he wonders if he's been rejected by the Lord like Saul once was. You see, when a heart gets beating again, it takes a little while for it to reach full strength. And the pulse is still faint for David. God made a covenant with David, and it should have galvanized in David's heart the anointing that was upon him, God's favor that was upon him. But now he's wondering... God will even restore him to the throne. He's doubting the promises that God has made. It is one of the most pernicious effects of sin in all of our lives. With sin in our lives, we begin to doubt God. We doubt His promises. We wonder, are we really his? And we start to feel this distance. We wonder what will happen on that judgment day. That's the effect of sin in a life. One of its effects. But faith is beginning to grow again in David's heart. If God is for him, he will sit on Israel's throne. If that's going to happen, then then he needs to do something right now. He needs to leave indifference behind. And it's time to engage in activity right now. Immediate action. So with the ark, he sends the priests back. They will be his agents. They will be the beginning of an elaborate spy network. And even in this, David is acting on faith. Faith that is very practical. And then we come to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So, retreating eastward from Jerusalem, surrounded by a procession of followers, and in some way with the eyes of Israel upon them, David ascends the Mount of Olives. They're a walking display of grief, of ritual, ceremonial grief, because the king departs. The king departs. And when the king departs Jerusalem, that means that their reality is under assault. Their whole world seems to be coming undone. This thing that God has done, this king that he has appointed, is he failing? And David weeps, not because he pities himself, but because he knows that he is the present embodiment of God's royal kingdom plan, his royal reality, and he weeps. Has it come undone? Learning that Ahithophel has joined Absalom is no help. Just another blow along the way. Another strike. And for the first time in a very long time, David prays. He prays a very simple prayer. It's an entirely practical prayer. It's a prayer through his tears. It's a prayer of faith. Isn't this how we pray when we're desperate? It's not lavish, extravagant. It's usually not even very deep. It's just, God, help me. Help me. Make Ahithophel's counsel of foolishness. God, chapter 17 God does answer that prayer resoundingly Ahithophel gives foolish advice but he continues up the Mount of Olives coming to the summit in verse 32 and David was, continu- continu- was coming to the summit where God was worshipped behold Hishai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head David said to him if you go on with me you will be a burden to me That's a greeting. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be with your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your Zadok and Abiathar the priests, with you there. So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, there are two sons with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. There are more meetings after this as David leaves Jerusalem, but this is the last one we're looking at today. David's friend, Hushai. Now he has been a powerful advisor with Ahithophel. Now the two, they once worked together, and now they will be secret counterparts. Hushai being a double agent now. He's clearly a loyal friend because he's willing to do this, become a double agent at the risk of his own life by re entering Jerusalem. David's web of espionage is now cast upon Jerusalem and just in time. Absalom arrives, not understanding who is the fly and who is the spider. He has underestimated his father. And we will see the fruit of it in the chapters to come. But they have all underestimated sin. Sin that destroys, and sin that tears apart, and sin that sows bitterness, and sin that breeds chaos. The sins of the Father, a man after God's own heart, they have now multiplied in his children. And the whole royal family has desperately fallen. And David flees to the wilderness beyond the Jordan. He flees from Jerusalem. I don't know if you can see it passing through Jericho into the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan River. Nathan's prophecy couldn't have been more accurate. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. few things create deeper wounds than a fallen family too many here carry the scars i think that there are many here today that grieve the family that could have been maybe the family that once was for some it feels like right now your your family's in the process of falling for the life of you, you don't know how to stop it. It's like trying to hold on to water. How can irreparable damage be undone? How can scars that are so deep and so old be healed? And how can we broken people be, truly be family Do you know where the answer begins? In the wilderness, on the other side of the Jordan River, where a great reversal began. Jesus, from the wilderness across the Jordan, was planning to go to Jerusalem and retake the throne and reconcile the family. And through a series of meetings, Jesus taught about the fallenness of divorce. And then he he took children into his arms and he blessed them. He told a vain and a rich man how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then after crossing the Jordan, he tells his disciples that if they want to rule, they must first become a servant. Passing by Jericho, he heals the blind. And then he ascends the Mount of Olives from the other side. And when he crests the Mount of Olives, he looks out on Jerusalem. And he weeps over Jerusalem, the city he loved. And he knew that within a generation, that very city, the city that would so soon reject him, it would burn And in about 40 years, it did. David left Jerusalem to save himself, his people, and to save Jerusalem from being destroyed. Jesus entered Jerusalem, knowing he would be destroyed, and so would the city. As David wept, so too did Jesus. But through Christ's weeping, though Christ's weeping was was deep and it was genuine, there was also hope on the other side of this. A life that comes from death. And it was a hope that was punctuated by these crowds that lined the street, that shouted out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! They were quoting Psalm 118, a psalm that was penned very likely by David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And with these shouts ringing from the Mount of Olives, Jesus enters Jerusalem to be destroyed. He, the bound and festal sacrifice. He, with a face set like flint, on behalf of his broken field, his broken people to mend a family torn apart he would die to overthrow the horrific power of sin because sin tears us from god it separates us from our heavenly father but christ absorbed that sin he took it upon himself so that when he died our sin was killed it went into the grave never to rise but christ rose in righteousness. And when he rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he takes us with him. To the right hand of the Father, beloved, precious, children reconciled unto God. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the most fundamental part of your identity. You are a child of God. The wonder of that is beyond our imagining. We cannot, we can never repair the damage that's been done by our sins. So Christ did it. Christ did it on our behalf. And now we're forgiven and we are redeemed and our scars are healed in his scars and we broken people can be we can truly be a family we can be believe for by grace we are saved by grace we are sons and daughters of god in christ we are brothers and sisters brothers and sisters This family here, bound by our love for the king, is more lasting than blood? It is more real than a shared last name? And John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, we love our biological families, don't we? So deeply. That's right, too. But our love for our families must fall into the right order. Our hearts, our minds, our souls are to be wholly devoted unto God. We are to be His body and soul. Like the words of Itai, should be our words to our king. As the Lord lives, as my Lord lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or by life, there also will your servant be. May that be true in us. He is to be our first love. And you have to ask yourself, would David's family have fallen so far if his heart hadn't drifted from God? We don't know. But the beautiful thing is that in Christ, when we love Christ, when we follow our King, when we receive love from the Father then that same love begins to flow from our hearts like rivers of living water and it has a reconciling effect and and there's healing in its flood, this love that flows through us that comes from the Father. And we're not perfected, so neither is our love yet, but that love for those who, who have eyes to see it, that love is love from the Father flowing through us It is why Peter writes, Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. It's sorrowful to see David's fallen family, and parts of it would heal, and parts will not, and things are never reconciled with Absalom. In fact, Absalom is entirely lost. But that's the sad and hard reality when sin has gripped a family. Some things may never heal. In a family, sin has consequences. And it might not originate with the Father as it did in David's family, but every family is touched by sin. And yet there is hope. Because Christ has begun a great reversal and reconciliation flows through the empty tomb of our King and all things are being made new. Father, we thank you for this incredible reality, this great promise, this newness streaming from an empty tomb. So everywhere that there is sin and brokenness and fallenness in our life and our families, Pour your love upon it, God. Help us to live in that love. To not get caught up in our sins. To not fall into this cold indifference. These hearts are so prone to wander. But Lord, draw us to yourself. As we look upon Christ who has descended the Mount of Olives, who has come to make all things new. Oh, Lord, may our hearts beat a little faster, our hearts of faith. May we believe. May that belief have a transformative effect in every part of our life, every part of our families. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.